They are, but I am. Hi, guys. <clears throat> I'm sorry I just interrupted Patrick, but we have to make sacrifices sometimes. Anyway, uh, love you too. Revelation 19, part one. And uh, it's March 25th. Uh, we have gone through up to 18, of course. That's why we're here. But we've talked all about things that have, from an eschatological point of view, occurred. Uh, and we are in 19, which is the final chapter of things that have occurred before the marriage of the bride. We're going to get to that, but first we'll do what we always do, and that's pray. We'll sing the Word of God, set to music, sit in silence for just a couple minutes, and then we'll come back and we're going to read 19 and get into it. There's some uh, interesting, very intriguing things. I thought we could get through this chapter in one day, and I think I made it through six verses. But uh, it's interesting stuff. So let's uh, pray, and uh, we welcome everybody who's here uh, in the studio church, and then those of you who are at home watching, and then who watch on the archives. Lord, we thank you for life and for the word that we have before us. Grateful for the insights we have to uh, the things that you want us to know, and we pray that your spirit will move and guide us, not only to reflect on the joy and the gratitude we have in uh, the Lord Jesus and coming and giving his life and shedding his blood, but for the uh, freedom that that gives and the uh, liberty that we have knowing that he finished it and uh, it's done. And so we move forward with that freedom, Lord, and we seek you to help us to understand what you have for us today. So be with us in spirit as we consider your word set to music right now. And uh, in Jesus' name, amen. And we know.
Kurios Lord. So um, you may not see them or hear them or even care. Uh, I care because I think they're important because Jesus at this point is in heaven with his Father, and yet there remains key distinctives in this narrative from John describing what he sees. So uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to kind of pause, step back, Wendy. I'm moving backward here. I hope you can get this on camera. And as we write, in fact, we're probably going to go to camera too. As, we, as I read, I'm going to mark these distinctions that come up and, and put them underneath the description of Theos and or under the description of Kurios, Lord. And you just kind of look to see what it means to you. That's how we do it here. So it says, And after these things, everything we have read up until this point in Revelation, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, that's the Greek for hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. So, um, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of the servants at her hand. And they again said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. So I'm going to write a few things right now that we've come to. First of all, it's the Lord our God. We know that from the text. We know that he avenged the blood of his servants. And we also see that though they worshiped God, who sat on the throne. So the God sat on the throne. Um, and the praise of our God who sat on that throne. God on the throne. All right. Praise our God, verse 5. All the servants, you that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of great multitude and the voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God's omnipotent strength. So, so there's another one. Omnipotent strength. Okay, stay with me. And... Um, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. So, glad, rejoice, honor. Another one. Glad, rejoice, honor to him. Who is the him? The one who sits on the throne, who's getting the praise. Sat on the throne, who avenged the blood of the servants. The Lord our God. That is who it is. That's, that's what it's saying thus far. Stay, so stay with me. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. So now we have the Lord Lamb, and a marriage is being spoken of. And so the marriage of the Lamb is come, John writes. Different from the Theos. And, um, 
and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The bride is the church, and the righteousness of the saints is depicted by her, the church, the bride being clothed in white linen. And, uh, and that white linen is the righteousness of the saints of the church of that day, is how we have said it. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage of the supper of the Lamb. Supper of the Lamb. Not the supper of Theos. It's the supper of the Lamb. There's going to be some kind of supper or dinner here held in honor of this marriage of the Lamb to his bride. You still with me? And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. John says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So now we have under Lord the testimony of the Lord. And uh, mentioned relative to him, uh, let me see here. And the testimony of the Lord, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We'll cover what that means next week. So these things are all relative to the Lord, the Lamb. And then, and I saw heaven open, verse 11, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him was faithful and true and he does judge and make war. He who sits on the horse, faithful and true, is the Lamb, is the Lord, is Jesus. It is not Theos. Theos is on his throne in this image. So I just want to point this out to you, how John is lining this up for what he's seen in the Scripture. And, um, and in righteousness, and, and he does judge and make war. And now we have a description of him who sits on the horse. And his eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with the vestiture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. So... Now we have the word of God, his vestigers dipped in blood, and he has uh, eyes that are, excuse me, a flame of fire. And we have that he is um, a name that is written on him. Oh, but also has many crowns. We see how all of this fits the Lord Jesus Christ now having overcome in his kingdom, getting ready for the bride. These things are all descriptions of the lamb and that how he uh, has a name that no man knew but himself and he was clothed in vestiture dipped in blood and his name is called, as John attests in earlier places, the word, that's his name, of Theos. That is what his name is. The word of the one who's described in the first verses of 19. Now, I'm not going to make any commentary on this. I just want you to see what the scripture says and how John, what John is seeing here. Okay? 
And he says, verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon the white horse, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth came a sharp sword. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword. Let me see, make sure I'm on the right track here. Okay. And uh, that with it he should smite the nations... And he shall rule them with an iron rod and treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty Theos. So now we come to another one. Almighty Theos is how John sees what the lamb is doing. And he that has the vestiger on his thigh is the name written King of Kings. I'm just going to abbreviate that. King of Kings and Lord of of lords. We see Theos clearly described here as God. We see the Lamb clearly described as the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Okay. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying unto all the fowls, all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together in the supper of the great God. So it's a, it's a calling into this dinner that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and on them that sit on them and the flesh of them, both free and bond and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse, make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. This is recapitulation that John is doing. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. We identified him way back as Nero and the, uh, and the Matria uh, mark of 666, matching Nero's name, which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. Both these were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat on the uh, horse, which is in his mouth, the remnant were slain with the word of his mouth, which proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So, I just wanted to cover that for you. It didn't, doesn't really have to do with our verse by verse. Just to let you see, as we went through reading it, there is a real different picture being described here for us by John in the things he sees here in Revelation. So, let's get into our study now. Um, Revelation 1 through 6. We'll go back and read it and then cover it. John says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto our the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. He has judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, you that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were a great voice of the multitude and as a voice of many waters and a voice of many mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, um, we have just read a key word here that I'm going to cover in a minute. Hallelujah, which is the Greek way of saying hallelujah. And it's 
only used in the book of Revelation chapter 19. Why is it used here? Because this is the culmination of everything we've been written where the bride and everything has turned itself over and are praising God because he has had the ultimate consummate victory over the whore who has ravaged the people and put her under all sorts of chains in death. In the previous chapter, we saw so much mourning on the part of kings and merchants and shipmasters of the earth, as it said, which we understood to be Palestine. And Israel was mourning because she was being destroyed and all the, sh all the merchants could see it. Here at the beginning of this chapter, the heavens are rejoicing. So we left chapter 18 with the people of the earth mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem. And now here in, uh, in 19, we have the heavens. That's how it opens up. And I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. So we see there has been a victory. When? At the destruction of the great whore and of the great city, which we have been talking about. Wiped out. They are rejoicing now. Hallelujah. For God has judged the great prostitute and has avenged on her. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Verse 2, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth, the Gehe, the land, the area, Palestine, with her fornication, and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And as we've already made very clear, there was one principality, one place that had the blood of the prophets and the apostles, as it said in chapter 18, on their hands. Israel, uh, post-70 AD, pre-70 AD. They had the blood of all the prophets, as Jesus says in his gospels, and now the apostles on their hands. They had engaged with the whore, and she wiped them out. And so here the heavens are rejoicing. True and righteous are God's judgments. He's judged this whore and her corrupt uh, fornication, who has avenged the blood of the, her servants, the prophets. And back in chapter 18, it says, and apostles. There is no nation on earth that is guilty of putting the prophets and apostles to death today. That was strictly upon Israel of that day, and that's why they experienced the horrors we have covered at length up to this point. So we have also seen throughout our study of Revelation that the term earth does not mean cosmos, so it doesn't mean whole world. It means the local oikomenia, the lo local economy of Judea, of Palestine, Israel, Rome, in invading, doing what they did back in that day as we have read historically. And then we read at verse 3, and again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. Now, before I cover, I'm going to cover that word, Hallelujah, in a second. But I've mentioned before that that phrase, and the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, is used by people when they describe afterlife punishment as hell and or the lake of fire burning people up forever and ever and ever. The smoke goes up forever and ever. And uh, this is, is more of a reference to the eternal extinction of the old covenant uh, than uh, the real city of Jerusalem. Why can we say that? Because there's a city of Jerusalem today in and around the same vicinity as the old Jerusalem was. And so it hasn't extinguished forever and ever. 
But we know that the old covenant system of temple rites, priesthood, rituals has ascended forever. It's, it's, it's toast. It's fire. It's gone. The expression, the smoke has gone up for her forever and ever, is also used in Revelation 14, 11. And it's regarding the torment laid up for those who worship the beast and its image. This harkens back to Isaiah 34, where the same expression is used upon Edom. All right? Again, the same expression is used on Edom. The same expression is used towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Is Sodom and Gomorrah still burning with the smoke ascending up forever and ever? It is not. Is Edom still burning with the smoke ascending up forever and ever? It is not. It's an image, it's language that the Hebrews would use to suggest that forever and ever this thing has been destroyed. What happened there was destroyed. And that's what the imagery means. It doesn't mean eternal punishment as it is so wrongly used by many uh, people. So... There are greater fulfillment minds than mine who have discovered a parallel content between chapter 11 and chapter 19 that I just read. Uh, David Chilton, he says uh, that in the two set of scripture, chapter 11 and chapter 19, are there because they represent the closing visions of two major sections of this book. So let me give you six similarities that occur in chapter 11 and chapter 19, which I just read. There are loud voices in heaven. That's 11.15 and 19.1. So we have a similarity there. Chilton says we have a period of time ending in 11. And so we read of the voices in heaven. We have something ending in 19. So we have voices in heaven heard in 19, as John says in the first verse of chapter 19. Uh, number two, the declaration of a commencement of the reign of God. In, in chapter 11, verses 5 and 17, we have the uh, uh, announcement of the commencement of the kingdom of God. We see that too here in 19, because different things have been accomplished in the book of Revelation itself. The 24 elders fall on their faces in worship. Chapter 11, verse 16, chapter 9, 19, verse 4. Uh, the, the avenging of the blood of his servants is announced in chapter 11 and then also in 19. A reference of God's servants who fear him, small and great. Small and great servants are mentioned in 11.18 and in 19.5. And then finally, loud noises including thunderings are in 19 and, 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 and were in 11. Are in 19 and were in 11. So, just realize that we are re, when you're studying this book, that things happen that represent the ending of a period and the beginning of another. That happened in chapter 11, and now in 19, we're reading about the fulfillment of all we have read. Everything now has hallelujah, 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 three times in the uh, uh, chapter 19. Nowhere else in the New Testament has hallelujah used, and it's only used in the book of Psalms anywhere else. So we have something wonderful happening, and so hallelujah is the way to, to explain that. Verse 4, and the four and twenty-four elders and four beasts that are under the uh, throne, not the, not the beast ravaging Nero beasts, but the beasts that are under the throne that have the eyes and wings and stuff, fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne. They worshipped God who sat on the throne and they said, Amen, Alleluia. So, we know in 
chapters 4, 5, and 11, that these characters, these elders, and these beasts under the throne are talked about. Mentioned again here in this final chapter of Revelation's wrap-up. Okay? Let's talk about Alleluia. Um, of course, the Greeks, that's how they say it. The, the Hebrews say, the way we would say it in English, Hallelujah. And it means, praise ye Jehovah. And Jehovah is even wrong. It's really, praise ye Yahweh, which is wrong. Really, what it is to a Jew, a faithful Jew would not say Jehovah. They would not say Yahweh. A faithful Jew would say uh, Hashem which means the God, and it's a way to not use any sort of bastardization of his name. So they would say, hallelujah means praise Hashem. Why are they praising Hashem here in chapter 19? Because Hashem has done everything that Hashem said would happen. It is completed. We are now ready for the bride to marry the groom, Christ, and for the dinner to be set and for us to enter into a whole new uh, time. Now, there are, in chapter 19, we're met with this term, not three times, but four, time, four times. And uh, I don't want to do this, but because um, it's really above my intelligence and pay grade to talk about the word hallelujah, but it is an important term to discuss simply because we only read it here. And we also know that it is used frequently in the Christian world today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right? To start, the word looks like a biblical name. If you go to the Old Testament, the biblical names often have a verb and they have a name associated with the verb. And so it's pretty wild that we don't see that name, hallelujah, um, represented anywhere in scripture but it really looks like just by its construction a, a proper name like sean but in hebrew in english and other languages the term hallelujah stands alone we say hallelujah and it means praise the lord to us right but in hebrew it contains a bunch of different names so it's a conglomeration of a bunch of different names words phrases that are frequently presented in the Hebrew text. So if we take the word hallelujah, we just say hallelujah, you know, praise the Lord. But it really, in the, to a Hebrew, halal is a word that's used all through the Old Testament. And halal has a very deep meaning into many words in, uh, to the Jews. And then uh, Yah, J-A-H, is a name for God in the Old Testament. So, hallelujah, yeah, it's really saying something about what happens between the person and God. What is going on as a result of that relationship. So, hallelujah to us, English, is sort of like a Southern Californian who will say when he sees the surf, dude. That, that's kind of what it is. And uh, it's a term of exultion, you know, uh, Look at this. But to the Hebrew, it's recognized as a part of their proper language. And it's not just like this expression that they use like we do it. We walk around and we use it very, very just loosely, but not to the Jew. So 
the, the etymology of the word is a little bit um, difficult. It consists of two elements, uh, three, Yah, Yahoo, you. These are all abbreviated forms of the tetragrammaton. So we know that the tetragrammaton looks like this. That, those are the four consonal uh, sounds for the name of God, and we don't know what uh, fills them in, so we don't know how to say it. So that's why the, the Jews won't say it. They'll just say Hashem. Um, but the, so we have all those letters in there, and together they form uh, the consonal name of the Lord. And then we also have the word Hallel. Now, Hallel, we tend to think in black and white terms. This means this, or it means that. We, but Hallel is a, is a word that can mean evil or good. It can mean to glory in a good way. It can mean to glory in a bad way. So it means to shine. It means to praise and be boastful, negative or positive. Uh, it can be to make a fool of oneself this halal. It can be to act like a madman, a halal. And so in the negative sense, we could say halal in, in describing somebody who belongs in a, a, a straitjacket. At the same time, halal could be describing somebody who's caught up in the spirit and rejoicing. And when we look at it, we don't understand what's happening, but they actually are looking like they're a madman, but they are actually praising. So it has these different ways of application through the Old uh, Testament. The point is Hallel cannot be um, radically nestled into the, the, thing, the, the idea of this is really good, uh, this is really bad. It is both in the way the Hebrews wrote. Exuberance. It really consummately means from what this Jewish uh, website full of Hebrew scholars say, it is a letting go of restraint. Hallelujah. Letting go of restraint to God. And we, we apply that because of a television show that was popularized in the 70s, the PTL Club. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord was popularized and it was used to show a form of letting go of restraint where people are raising their hands and, and praising God and, and that's a form of the hallelujah. Um, but it means getting rid of any inhibition to let God completely take over. For you to completely show that God has had you in his hands completely. Hallel, in that sense, is really difficult for human beings to achieve. And so, but it, on the same token, it can also mean to run from surrendering to God. That is also a Hallel in the Hebrew. So again, not that black and white thing. So it can be a very holy expression of somebody giving up their everything to Hashem, or it can mean someone who is saying, no, I'm not going to give up 
my everything to Hashem. The Apostle Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 14 followers about the halal expression in the church. He warns them not to speak in tongues with this wild abandonment in the church where there are guests in the, conver- in the congregation who will look at them and say, you're a madman. That's where Hillel applies to looking like a madman. Paul says, don't do that in the church. They'll think you're mad. They won't understand what's going on. Don't let go of your wild inhibitions. Uh, you're, you're uninhibited before God. Don't do that in the church because there could be people there who won't understand it. When David transports the ark, and he's taking the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he shows such joy and gladness. It's, it's his Hallel. He loses all inhibition, and he dances like a madman around a hallelujah, a Hallel, uh, J-A-H, without any inhibition. David was saying, God, you have my everything. I am not embarrassed one whit by what people will think with my halal here, okay? Of course, when his wife, Michael, sees him, she insults him, and she says that he is insane, and of course, he doesn't sleep with her again, and she dies childless. So uh, we, we see that these expressions of this total inhibition toward God. Now, there's a point to all this, and, and I'll get to it in a second. Um, there's a, there's a script, there, there's, a, there's a, those of you who are uh, in the humanities, there's a uh, sculpture, and it's known as the Ecstasy of St. Teresa. And you might recognize that she's laying back, and she's laying in this state of ecstasy, and she's clothed in, uh, in all those big gowns they wore, the Ecstasy of St. Teresa. And it's supposed to suggest the halal of giving up full inhibition to God. But... Uh, critics say that she's in a state of sexual euphoria. And so they have taken it and they've made it uh, an ugly kind of carnal thing. So guess what some scientists did? They went and they took brain scans of people who were worshiping God. And they also took uh, brain scans of people who were involved in sexual relations with their spouse. And they monitored them, and the exact same brain regions are activated in both groups when they're engaged in either um, activity. And if you want to know where that comes from, it's Andrew Newberg, John Horgan, and Miracles, God, Science, and Psychology in the Paranormal. Also, Where God and Science Meet, How Brain and Evolutionary Studies Alter Our Understanding of Religion, 2006. So that's on the tape. You can look at them up and you can read how they discovered that it's the very same process going on when someone loses their inhibition in the presence of another being. And we know in marital, intimate marital relationships that can occur and we know that in worship with God that occurs. Because the Bible frequently um, suggests that God is in a relationship with his bride and that koinonia is being uh, expressed this is a little bit explicit here there god is having intercourse with the the bride we have the same thing that is being played out here and when the use of the term hallelujah 
that the bride is saying, we fully re- relinquish ourselves to God. Hallelujah. Four times. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And it's the same relinquishment that a man and a woman would have in marital relationships if and when they trust each other and relinquish themselves over into that relationship. So it seems from this that we are designed to let go every now and then. And when we let go in the presence of God, it's called worshiping. Now, and that's in a, in, to me, it's a private thing, the same way relations with a spouse are. It is not a public thing uh, any more than the relations with a spouse would be. But we have made it a public thing just by virtue of culture, in my estimation. I, my, you would never see my wife, who's a very private person, worshiping with the fanaticism that you see today in the supposed halal of uh, Jah. But... Uh, that doesn't mean she can't be one with God. It just means it's a private thing. So we have some links here between those two actions. So these insights help us understand how Hallel, true Hallel, can be bastardized by religion and used improperly, where people maybe even feign giving their all to God, when in reality in their daily life they don't. So, although hallelujah consists of two distinct verb entities, a verb and a name, uh, it's consistently written in the Old and New Testament uh, and in the Psalms, and uh, we read about them and then only here in Revelation 19. So, the importance of this, and now I'm going to kind of wrap it up to the point. I know I've been rambling a little bit today. We are at the place of death of the old covenant. We are at the place where heaven and its inhabitants realize our whole can be given up to God. If I can put it that way. Maybe not literally, but kind of in a figurative sense. And the Hallel does apply to the final moment of letting go at death. The Bible sometimes calls death the way of all the earth. And uh, Joshua 23:14, 1 Kings 2, 2. The psalmist uh, uh, admonishes not only his soul to perform hallelujah, to perform hallelujah, but also everything has its breath in hallelujah. So we are, it's, it's, a, it's the, the, the consummate thing for a human being is to relinquish oneself at death. We don't want to do that. We grip to life with everything. And our flesh, when we're walking around as Christians, grips to what our flesh wants. But true hallelujah is in the rejoicing and praising of our ability to have no inhibition to let God completely take us over. Now at physical death, that is a huge thing. I am, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I am yours. Here is my worship. Here is my hallelujah from the heart. And we also experience it in our Christian walk, as I mentioned. We let go of all, praising Yah, as in hallelujah, the verb, who we relinquish everything to. That's what we're reading about here in chapter 19 is we're reading about the full relinquishment over to God. 
and for what he has accomplished. So just one kind of more carnal connection, but it brings it all together. The use of hallelujah in connection to sexual ecstasy, which is why I mentioned that uh, statue of Teresa, is interesting because the expression from the heart of praise is due to a union of God and man. Man saying, I give you my all now. Now I am ready to let you have it all. When we know it's really hard to do. And that is the same thing that is going on in healthy relationships uh, with couples uh, in, in intimacy. There has to be a trust. There has to be a willingness to be uh, exposed. There would be an uh, inhibition, no inhibition, excuse me, between them. And that is when true communion, koinonia is the word where we get the word coitus. I mean, we're having a real quite a lesson here. But the experience of hallelujah is how to die, how to die to self and to give praise and, and glory to God for him taking over completely. So uh, the Jews have a saying, I, I, I copied this from the internet, blessed is the one who's able to die in the spirit of hallelujah, who can render the soul without hesitation or trepidation, end quote. That is what we're looking for, right? Both in the marriage bed uh, for a healthy marital relationship and in the relationship with God, which is why they're so closely united. So um, it's really interesting. Finally, get a little bit more out there. I'm almost done. But even in sexual intimacy, at the moment when the final inhibitions are gone and there is a complete letting go and you read the the ultimate of the experience together, even atheists will cry, my God. There is a connection between the letting go of self in the marital relationship and the spiritual relationship that we have with God. That's why it's so sacred uh, on both accounts. And um, it's funny that, that the French even call that, that moment in sex the um, little death, the little death. Because that is when someone says, I, I, I am submitting my everything to this experience, and, and boom, it occurs in the flesh. And with God, it's the same thing. That's what we're reading about here in Revelation 19. That is why hallelujah is, is used four times and nowhere else in the book or even in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, nothing has been consummated for that yet. Nothing has reached that orgasmic point of, hey, it's complete. It's done. It's over. He has it. My all is yours. I am one with you completely. That is what's being, I know it's taken me a long time to get around to it, but that's what we're reading about. And that's what it is so written in the underlying text. So wild as it is, there are some insights to the use of hallelujah here in Revelation 19. John says, and a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his saints, and you that fear him, both small and great. Then John says, that's self-explanatory. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This is when we have complete reign, domination, 
all things over heaven and earth by the Lord God omnipotent, stated in 19 purposely. In chapter 18, we read several verses that tell us this is the finality of the old system of religion. Gone are the priesthoods. Gone are the genealogies. Gone are the temples. 70 AD uh, flattened. Here in verse 6, we see a reference to the onset of God's kingdom in its fullest in the words of the great multitude saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. This is something I stand upon so emphatically as a Christian. He reigns over everything. There is nothing that is out of his hands. He gave control to the whore to to, uh, persecute for three and a half years the saints. And we read how so many were put to death in such horrible ways during that time. But now the heavens are saying he reigns. People say, look at the world today. God isn't reigning. Oh, really? Really? So Jesus didn't fulfill what he came to do, and Satan is still stealing people, and Satan is still in control? When here in 19, we see that the Lord God is reigning, and to me, that means he is over it all. We read this morning, if I can remember it, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says something to the effect of, hey, I'm I'm here to judge the church. I'm here to govern the church, the body of Christ, the bride here in this day and age. He says, people who are outside of it, that's between them and God. He will judge them. And, and what is happening in 19 here is that's what's happened. God is now in the place and he is like reigning over everything. And so we have people of all walks and types going to meet God and he is holding them to the glories or to the judgment that awaits them in one way or another. He reigns over all. There's no more of this Satan taking the title deed from the earth and Jesus winning it back and the warfare and the accusations and the great white throne, which is coming up. None of that stuff's going to apply. The Lord God reigns. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Four times because the Lord God omnipotence there. Ken Gentry... He says the significance of the kingdom being taken from the harlot and given to the bride is seen this way. Very quickly. Quote, the New Testament records the gradual establishment of this kingdom. From its ministerial announcement, that's in Matthew and Mark, to its legal security at the cross, that's in many passages, to its public vindication in Israel's overthrow we see progressively God stepping in and taking over where the heavens now in 19 say he reigns, okay? God's removal of the temple system, physically breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, legally broken in Christ, Ephesians 2.14, conclusively ended the early Zionistic tendencies of many first century Christians, it ended many Zionistic tendencies of many early Christians. Got rid of all of it. It had to get rid of it. And, and we know that from Hebrews, our study of Hebrews. So, and he goes on and says, and established Christianity as a separate religion in its own right. And this is why Jesus likens the great tribulation to birth pains. It's going to come. It's going to be more painful for it, more painful, more painful, finally giving deliverance. He continues, quote, final paragraph, in conjunction with the marriage feast preparations, which we're reading about now, the bridegroom appears 
In fact, his divorce, did God, did God divorce? He did. We read about that in the Old Testament. He wrote a bill of divorcement to Israel. People say God hates divorce. He does, but she was not a faithful spouse. So he says, in fact, his divorce and capital punishment of his adulterous prostitute wife provide the very justification for this celebration and new marriage to his virtuous bride, which is what this is all to, the seven churches that are in uh, uh, Asia Minor at that time, the book of Revelation, written to them, to the seven churches then. So I would add that Paul says that at the death of one spouse, the other spouse becomes free to marry. It's only at the death. So we have to see the death of the old covenant system completely done away with. So this, I'm sorry, malarkey of needing to rebuild a third temple, gather money and send us your money and we'll give it to Israel to build the third temple. That is keeping that alive. That's keeping that whole thing alive. When Jesus didn't have a chance to have his bride, his church, until that, that other former prostitute wife is dead. Israel, fallen Israel. And that's what is being described here. Gentry concludes with these remarks. The lesson of Revelation now becomes clear. Christ gloriously appears as a warrior bridegroom, punishing faithless Jerusalem and taking his new bride. That's how he puts it. Taking, having taken. Okay? That's why I teach that the bride was the church of that age. We are the body of Christ. Individuals now responsible to God by and through their walk, their faith, their love, etc. Every individual dying, not as a group, not as a bride, not as a nation of Israel, as a nation. It's gone smaller. It's gone as a nation, then it went to a small bride, and now it's gone to the individual. Each one of us now, we don't go before God with a pastor, priest, or anybody making intercession for us. It's us. Did we believe on his son, etc. So it's to this picture of Christ taking a new bride that appears, and we now see an expanded recapitulation uh, of these verses, in, and we'll see this, an expanded recapitulation of these verses in uh, chapter 21, which we'll get to. All right, verse 7. The voice says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. Ready? For the marriage of the Lamb is come. Most Christian scholars of eschatology admit that up through 19, we have fulfillment. For the marriage of the Lamb to have come, uh, it had to have happened then if we say 19 is, is fulfilled. So, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife made herself ready. Now, that's really important what, is, what it says there. The marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife made herself ready. The bride of Christ made herself ready. All right. This reading of the marriage of the lamb and his wife is an ongoing process that's revealed in Scripture that I emphatically teach in our milk and as I talk to people about uh, Christianity today. And it's revealed both in Scripture and in cultural Israel and their wedding ceremonies. So in other words, after the ascension of Jesus to his father, that all unfolds. And I think it's clear. David Chilton writes this. He says, quote, The duty of the apostles during the last days was to prepare the church for her nuptials. 
The duty of the apostles during the last days was to prepare the church for her marriage. Paul wrote of Christ's sacrifice as the redemption of the bride. He loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the glorious church, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. That's Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. That's how Paul describes what uh, Christ was doing during that time. Can we say there is a bride today that has not been defiled, that has not fallen into corruption, that wanders this earth as a collective group? Is there a bride today he's coming to teach? Futurists will say, yes, it's, it's the faithful in the church of all different. That is not what uh, the apostles taught. The apostles taught, listen, if you're gathered in this group in, in Corinth and you have an unfaithful one, get them out. Get them out. It's your collective groups, groups in Corinth and in Asia Minor and in Jerusalem and Antioch. That is his bride. You didn't have corruption in the bride. She was holy and pure, and the apostles were there to make sure she was ready for his coming and taking of her. So Paul extends this imagery in uh, the goal of his ministry. He says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. Paul says that to the believers that day in Corinthians in chapter 11. This is the reason I'm on the earth. This is the reason I have powers of the Spirit that no other people will have. It's the reason I have everything that Christ has given me so I may present you, the believers at Corinth, as a pure and virtuous bride. Now, think about this in relation to our walk with God. The preparedness that is going on here has two distinct aspects, and we're going to wrap it up with this. On the one hand, the righteous actions that made, that it says the linen that she wears are, is the righteousness of, of, of the saints. We have God on one hand making the bride of Christ, the believers in the church of that day, justifying her through his shed blood, through faith. She is made righteous by his shed blood through faith. That's God's part in this. Part? It's his part. Because then we read that the bride also had to make herself ready. She didn't just say, I have been redeemed by God as the bride of Christ. I am going to enter into my marriage with Christ wearing dungarees and not fixing my hair and face. She had to make herself ready for that union. And so we have that agreement that goes on between God and men. That he does grace us with salvation by the blood of his son, accepting us into his body these days. But we make ourselves ready for that day when we die and meet him. Back in Paul's day, it was a bride who was making herself ready to be taken up. So this is such an important picture and type for every one of us today as we've been clothed in the grace of God um, by the a faith in his shed blood of his son in preparation to make ourselves ready for our death. That's how I put it. 
and I believe this from my heart and understanding of Scripture, but I don't have Scripture that tells us that this will then per, uh, carry on for individuals. There's no Scripture that tells us that. All of these Scriptures are focused on the bride. So um, we see that these bring out both man and God's agency in the sanctification of the bride and in the sanctification of ourselves. The bride had to choose to follow the apostolic teachings and be pure. We too have to choose if we are going to, having received justification, allow God to sanctify us in our flesh. And these things could be supported by a lot of different scripture. So um, another quote, the destruction of the harlot and the marriage of the lamb and the bride, the divorce and the wedding are correlative events the existence of the church as a congregation of the new covenant marks an entirely new epoch in the history of redemption. God now not merely taking the Gentile believers into the old covenant. That's not what it is. He had, uh, remember, God isn't assuming us into the old covenant. Because remember, God allowed Gentiles to come into the old covenant in the former economy. So that's not what is happening here. Rather, he was bringing in the age to come, Hebrews 2, uh, 5 and Hebrews 6, 5, the age of fulfillment when hallelujah would be set and God is on the sovereign throne and is over all things with the final divorce and destruction of the faithful wife in 70 AD, the marriage of the church was firmly established. Now that bride is firmly established, the marriage has happened and we might say we're the body of Christ that remains. We might say we're the children of that marriage. We might put it that way. We are, we are the children. This is all played out beautifully in a parable, and we're going to wrap it up with this, that Jesus tells. And, and he says this in Matthew. Uh, I don't know how the chapter here. I didn't write it. Verse 33. It starts at 33. He says, here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged round about it and digged a wine press and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to that husbandman and they, that they might receive the fruits of the vineyard that he made. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one, the prophets, killed another, and stoned another. That was their response. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, Christ coming in the meridian of time, showing up, saying, okay, you've killed all the prophets. Last of all, he sent unto them, and he said to himself, they'll reverence my son. This is a parable Jesus tells. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard, out of the vineyard, and slew him. And the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh. He, Jesus asked now, when the Lord of the vineyard comes, he says, what will he do to those husbandmen? This is what we're seeing. In Revelation, and they said unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and he will let out his vineyard to other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons, plural. 
ages to come. Jesus said unto him, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, Pharisees and Sadducees, listening to this parable, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. We aren't assimilated into that kingdom. It's taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. As individuals in our lives, we come to know Jesus, the rock. We fall on him and we break into pieces. He breaks our life up. We realize who we are. But he says, but on whomever it shall fall, the rock, they will be crushed and ground to powder by him. He's going to do one of two things as the one who's reigning over this kingdom. He'll make himself available. We fall on him and break or he falls on us and grinds us to powder in what I would say is afterlife uh, exposure to the love and fire of God. It will be a purging and rubbing away of all things that are not right. And the chief priests and heard this parable, they perceived that he spake of them, but when they sought to lay hands on him and feared the multitude, uh, they feared the multitude because they thought he was a prophet. Here we just read the religious leaders of Israel being guilty of murdering the prophets and apostles, according to chapter 18 of Revelation, finally rejecting and murdering God's son, that they then were to suffer the loss of the kingdom, the loss of the kingdom for doing it. When the owner of the vineyard comes in judgment, that happens 70 AD with the wholesale destruction of Jerusalem. The language of verse 44, the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone it falls on it will crush him, seems to be a clear reference to the catastrophic downfall of Jerusalem and its temple-based rituals that are now in effect. So in my estimation, it's also a reference to every single one of us as individuals. As we walk, we fall on him. We're broken, or he falls on us, and we'll be ground into powder. The reign of God is deciding how that looks in every single person. We can't really say. But uh, we'll leave it at that, and then we'll move on to more of our verse-by-verse verse in 19 next week. Comments, questions, answers of ridiculousness. Anyone? Uh, we have a new questioner today. Over there against the wall. He's a new man in Christ. Hi, Sean. Um, I love your teaching. Hashem. Thank you for teaching today. Um, so the Bride of Christ, you say, uh, and you see that this is backed up in Scripture. I 100% I, I believe you, you see that. Um, so we are not the Bride of Christ either. I don't believe we are the Bride. We don't fit the description of the Bride. Because the way I see it, and I'll just tell you really quick so we can get to other people, but... I see it that the Bible was written to the people of that time. Exactly, written to them. Ephesians was written to the Ephesians. Joshua was uh, writing his stuff right. to... Okay, so you get that. So it was written to them. But it's also a warning to us as well. And the way I see in Scripture, and you don't have to agree with me, test all things, but the way I see is that we are also, just as the body of Christ, we are also the bride in a, more, in a symbolic sense, maybe not 70 AD literally, but we are the bride of Christ and the fact that we're sealed to Christ by the Holy Spirit and we are His. Obviously, Joseph Smith twisted the sealing, but we are sealed to Christ. 
And so we're married to him. Does that, you see what, I, what I'm I getting? I see what you're saying. Yeah. Unfortunately, the bride was taken and the marriage supper was planned for that wedding. And the bride is depicted in pure purity. They were virgins, for instance, according to Revelation. 144,000 of them had never been uh, corrupted by uh, sex, it says. So we know they were of a different sort and that Paul and the other apostles worked hard to keep the bride pure. Okay, so when you make the jump and say, we're the bride too, it doesn't fit necessarily with what they were and what happened in 70 AD. However, I see if there was a wedding, there to be children of that union. Mm -hmm. You could be a child of the groom and bride in the body of Christ today, but to say the bride is still today spiritually, I just can't see that as working out. Uh, but that's me, like you said. That's my opinion. I see both views. Thank yeah. you, Sean. Is that it? All right. Let's pray. Lord, uh, help us to know your truth, not my words and philosophies and, uh, and, and, and anyone else's, uh, just what your scripture is telling us by the Spirit. And uh, not to um, allow ourselves the prejudices that might come with our, we pray for Annette and Mike and David and the cancer that is in the family and they're recovering for Diana, the healing of her legs, who's in a, a home and, and unavailable to us uh, in many ways. We pray for Gracie, our little child who's suffering from cancer and bald and our heart goes out to children when they get so sick and we pray you'll bless her parents and everybody who is involved with Gracie and we pray for Claire who needs a double lung transplant James who wants to live and the same with Rachel and Warren and uh, we pray for um, uh, Patrick's grandpa and the surgery that he's having and a pacemaker surgery and for Paul that he'll come to know you God so uh, all these people who have suffered loss, Richard Allen and, and, uh, and, and Liz and other people who have experienced death this week, past week, we just pray your spirit and comfort. And those who are struggling with the relinquishment, the inhibition of turning it over to you, that you'll empower them and let them look to you in faith and trust to handle these dire situations. And if the end result is physical death, uh, for them to know that spiritual life continues on eternally hereafter. We love you, Lord. We seek you. We need you in our lives. And uh, we don't want to be ungrateful. We don't want to be arrogant in our walk. We want to be cognizant of your presence every minute of the day as we look about us and see your handiwork and sense your presence in our lives, realizing we will come to that moment where we too will sing hallelujah, either from the heart or it will be from uh, uh, feigning and we pray that our hearts are prepared. So we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And we